0: The Honorable Lawrence Patton McDonald. Thank you very much, Ralph, and thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. It's a pleasure to be here tonight, and I appreciate your attendance. I know that uh, some of you may have come with some degree of apprehension that Having a southerner speak, you may not be able to follow the accent. Uh, I come from the northern part of Georgia, so it should be all right. But uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I appreciate the Capital District chapters of the John Birch Society in sponsoring this opportunity to come with you tonight and to discuss a review of our heritage and what has happened to it, the individuals and forces that have been responsible for that transition, and what we as Americans can do about it, and how it can be done, certainly urge all of you to do your very best in restoring the system that was certainly the greatest system the world has ever seen. We just finished our bicentennial period a few years ago, and it was a time of celebration, a time of parades, a time of festivities and cleaning up of many of our streets and small communities, renovation. But going back to the period and trials of 1776 and their endeavors, we find that they were groping in the initial years trying to find a proper form of government, a government that would hold not only for their time but for future generations. Our founding fathers initially formed a government that might be considered too far to the right on the political spectrum under the Articles of Confederation. And the Revolutionary War was fought under that particular system or form of government. Our first president was a Mr. Hanson. And after the Revolutionary War, our founding fathers came together again to try to form a more perfect union. And in their second endeavor, scrapped the Articles of Confederation and moved to form a constitutional republic. Republic is an interesting word. It comes from the Latin res publica meaning simply the public thing in this case referring to the law our system of government right and wrong would be based upon the law and not the judgment decisions of men most governments down through the ages right and wrong has been based upon the judgment decisions of men whether it's the politburo or the council of bishops or the dukes or the generals of a Genghis Khan, or the priest of a pharaoh. But our system was to reject that view that right and wrong might change from one particular council to another. Instead, our citizens would live under a very difficult form of government to maintain, that based upon law or a constitutional republic, our law being, of course, the United States Constitution. Thomas Jefferson had an interesting observation and I think a warning for future generations when he said, yes, we did produce a near perfect republic, but will they keep it or will they in the enjoyment of plenty lose the memory of freedom? Material abundance without character is the surest way to destruction. Our form of prosperity was to be based upon what we term the free enterprise system. It's a concept of capitalism, of competitive capitalism. Without going into the details of economic systems, today the world is being gripped between two concepts, that of competitive capitalism and variants of monopolistic capitalism. But our founding fathers intended very clearly that ours was to be A free enterprise system, meaning simply that the government would stay out of the marketplace, stay off of your back and out of your pockets. If you wanted to be a farmer, that would be your decision. If you wanted to be a farmer instead of a pharmacist, if you wanted to grow yellow corn instead of white corn, that would be your decision. But when to plant, where to plant, when to harvest, where to sell, and at what price, all of these would be your decision. With regard to the public economy or the public concepts of the spending of government, there was a debate in the early years between some in our leadership ranks who felt that uh, it would be reasonable that national debts, uh, a debt, is not such a terrible thing. Europe had been gripped with the philosophies of a John Law that had led some people to believe that you could create prosperity and there were some of our founding fathers who perhaps felt that there would be merit uh, in the government trying to stimulate prosperity but our founding fathers settled on the view and upon the objective of keeping the government out of debt and allowing the people to create the prosperity and allowing the people to move at their own pace. Once again, it was Thomas Jefferson who made the observation on the debate on the matter of a debt. When he said, I place economy among the first and most important virtues and public debt as the greatest of dangers to be feared. To preserve our independence, we must make our election between economy and liberty or profusion and servitude if we run into such debts we must be taxed in our meat and our drinks in our necessities and our comforts in our labors and our amusements if we can prevent the government from wasting the labors of the people under the pretense of caring for them they must become happy and lastly the third pillar that our founding fathers gave us following the First uh, period of our creation after the Revolutionary War was a social order based upon a Christian heritage of morality and our founding fathers were very clear that you cannot divorce religion from government a your government will be based upon some concept of morality and we live in interesting times and I guess hardly a week goes by on the house floor when Some representative stands up and says but we are trying to legislate morality you cannot legislate morality and that is a cliche that many of us have bought but we should admit that all laws are morality legislated the only question therefore is what is the basis of the morality what's the guideline of your morality Today, we have some people who say that uh, the communists, for example, are immoral or amoral. Clearly, that is not the case. They are extremely disciplined in their code or concept of morality. But their code or concept of morality is completely divorced from the basis of morality of Western civilization. In short, in the communist world, to just digress for a moment further. In the communist world, right and wrong, those concepts are not based upon eternal values, rather based upon what is viewed as best for the people. And what is best for the people today may obviously change tomorrow, depending upon who controls the people. Because, of course, the people do not take a vote. Actually, it is a dictatorship of the controlling and monopolistic force of the people so you have in the communist system an extremely strict code of morality and a rather easy one to understand very difficult to follow because you never know the twist and turns but anything that benefits the state man's institution is good and honest anything and anything that is a hindrance to the state is bad untruthful and immoral. But our system was to be based upon a biblical concept of morality or a Christian heritage, going back to the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament and the teachings of Christ in the New. The general philosophy of our founding fathers as we emerged into the 19th century was that the function of government at the federal level Was to protect and not provide to protect life and property but not to be a provider because our founding fathers knew very well that once government moves into the role of becoming a provider two things take place I mean just like night to day the first thing that takes place is that you produce a conflict society Individual citizens start viewing themselves as part of a special group of society, not as Americans all, but as a special group of society. Uh, Farmers feel like they better organize to get their subsidies in Washington. They'll demonstrate, potentially strike, whatever it takes. Teachers, and I have been to NEA meetings where they say, you are separate, you're fighting the community for the community dollar and so forth. You must organize to get yours. And teachers were organized strike or threatened to strike to get their particular benefits organized labor or labor in general uh, may become involved to view itself as a separate segment to want special laws passed in the congress to pick up certain problems created by monopolistic practices big business will organize and exert its muscles in washington wishing the taxpayers to pick up special subsidies to guarantee possibly trade with Iron Curtain countries where the other side may welch on the debt or so forth, have it paid through the IMF or through uh, various international banking institutions and so forth, or have it underwritten by the taxpayers. And so our founding fathers knew that once government moves into the role of becoming a provider, you produce a conflict society. And let me say, as a physician, I've recognized that physicians become organized, start trying to work politically to get increasing federal subsidy for medical schools and medical research. And I'm sorry to say, most of that medical research, in my opinion, has been counterproductive rather than actually productive, which you might easily predict. The second point that happens, of course, is that you uh, destroy the economic stability of the society with the increasing cost of government and ultimately go into bankruptcy with a destruction of the economic system followed by a unraveling of the social order and ultimately the coming of a dictatorship amid the rioting and violence and the loss of the individual liberties, which was the whole function of the reason for the strife in setting up our government in the first place. Our founding father, Samuel Adams, correctly observed after the writing of the Constitution, and so many of our other founding fathers observed the same point, that the utopian schemes of leveling, leveling of society, and a community of goods are in our government unconstitutional. And I think that was a very clear warning. And regardless of some of the attitudes of our contemporaries, I think we can be justifiably proud that as we came into the 20th century, the United States became the leader in virtually every field of endeavor, recognized leader throughout the world. And people by the millions were willing to give up the concept of a guaranteed security in the old world, make sacrifices to get the price of a boat ticket to come across the waters, to come to the United States in order to live in a land of liberty. Liberty, not security. I have friends that say, look, the pioneer days are over and that individualism must give away to the collective need. And that the pioneer spirit that perhaps honors individual activity no longer is applicable today. And that I'm basically interested in security. We can remind our friends if that's all they want out of life is of course, three meals a day and free medical care and free clothing and something to do and maybe air-conditioned quarters, a view out the window and so forth, they can have all of that. I don't know what you have up here, maybe Sing Sing, but we have all that at the uh, Federal Pen in Atlanta, Georgia. In fact, the Federal Pen in Atlanta, Georgia, is a maximum security prison. It's where we take some of the toughest ones. But you have absolute security. The only thing you like is your liberties. But you have security. Uh, You really do not need to make any decisions. All of them will be made for you. You'll be cared and protected for truly back into a womb type of existence. Many people are perhaps taking the view today that that patriotism is passe. But all of us can be justifiably proud that we came into this century the envy of the world, of people around the world anxious to come here so that their children and grandchildren will be able to grow up under this system. Well, what has happened to this? The beginning changes from the standpoint of the assault on the Constitution, and I detail this in my book, actually began in the mid part of the 19th century, accelerated somewhat in the latter part of the 19th century, and continued in the early part of the 20th century. But of course, since the mid-1930s, we have been on an active toboggan slide away from the principles of greatness that we gained when our founding fathers uh, gave us our republic and a free enterprise system with a Christian heritage after the Revolutionary War. We have found that today that more and more people are led to believe that it's a lot easier to vote themselves a living than it is to work for a living. As I speak to college and high school groups, I frequently ask the students, philosophically speaking, what is the proper function of government? And it's amazing to me that the typical or common answer from such an audience is that the proper function of government is to provide me those things that I feel that I need that I cannot provide for myself. That is a typical answer coming up out of the high schools and colleges of today. We have seen the tremendous expansion of government. Today the government is involved in almost every area of human endeavor. With the destruction of the Constitution, the breaking of the boundaries of the Constitution, we've seen an explosive growth of government, a malignant growth of government. And with that, a price tag tied to it. And this price tag now it's, now exceeds uh, half a trillion dollars, over 550 billion dollars. Of course, we can't pay for all of this, Uh, we do not dare in Congress come and ask the taxpayers to pay the full bill so we have continued deficits. Now I know you're hearing about the deficit this year that we're whittling it down to 29 or so billion that we're really bringing it down, but that does not take into account about 20 billion dollars borrowed from the trust funds, about 12 billion or so in the off-budget items. And when you figure all these up you're looking at a 60 plus billion-dollar deficit. The servicing of the deficit and the creation of new money is, by definition, inflation. And this results in the rising prices, or more technically, the loss in the value of the dollar. It's not that gasoline is more valuable or that clothing is more valuable, that automobiles are more valuable. The obvious point is that the dollar is becoming less valuable. And out of this, we see continued restraints on our individual liberties. I think the best summary of what has happened was given by a man who was in full agreement with this transition. A man who was presidential advisor to Roosevelt in the 1930s, later in charge of Lend-Lease expedition to Russia in the 1940s. A rather shadowy figure, we don't know too much about him, by the name of Harry Hopkins. And Harry Hopkins reportedly first made the statement at a, at a racetrack in Maryland, I think, over the weekend. But at the press conference, with well, this part we can be sure about it, the press conference that then developed in the first part of the week, some member of the press asked him, was that indeed his summation of the transition that has gripped Washington? He said, yeah, that's about it. And that summation was to tax and tax, spend and spend, elect, and elect because in the words of harry hopkins hopkins the people are too damn dumb to understand in other words we are the elite we know how to make the decisions for the farmers better than the farmers do we know how to make the decisions for the manufacturers the merchants the hospitals the schools better than those individuals or the parents do and so the game is basically more and more taxes, more and more spending, more and more subsidies, more and more dependency upon government, and then constantly re-electing those who follow that line. Because if the people are not aware of what's happening and the people then subdivide themselves into special interest groups, they start voting for those who provide them the special subsidies and so that that type of individual constantly gets returned to office and those who are working to restore the Constitution are defeated. I think that's a pretty good summation, and that's, I think, the best summation that you can find on what's happening today in Washington in the 96th Congress. Now, I admit you do not hear that from your representatives or your senators. In their newsletters and in their town hall meetings or their interviews, they stress their concern about the working man, the need to strengthen the dollar, and all of those things. But that's because, in my opinion, most members of Congress are what might be termed political transvestites. They uh, speak like a George Wallace when they're back home, and they vote like a George McGovern when they're in Washington. And the sad part of it—sad <laughs> part of it—is, of course, we allow them to get away with this. Well, what have What has this particular trend brought us in this quick review that we're having up to the present? First, it has brought us the greatest debt in the history of the world, greater than all the other nations of the world combined. The debt now approaches uh, 800 to 900 billions of dollars. It's really an academic debt, in a sense, because the true debt is in the range of 6 to 7 trillion dollars. When you figure all the commitments made by the government and money not in the till, that you would have to figure as a businessman from an actuarially sound accounting method, the actual debt is in the range of six or seven trillion dollars. The debt, if parceled out on a per capita basis, would be about $150,000 per man, woman, and child in America. It has brought us our inflation that, of course, is sophisticated thievery. I say sophisticated because the average American is unable to understand the process. In fact, the typical American is apt to blame the businessman, blame the farmer, blame the labor union, or blame someone else. Remember the last time that the prices went up in the early 70s and the housewives went out and picketed supermarkets? If they had been smart, they would have been picketing their congressional offices. And so many people have been led to believe that what we thus must have are, of course, wage and price controls. And wage and price controls have never worked in the history of the world. Indeed, they cannot work if what you mean is lower prices and economic prosperity, if what you mean is more power being transferred to a centralized government. Yes, wage and price controls always work, but they were tried in the Babylonian period. They were tried by Emperor Huang in China. They were tried by the Emperor Diocletian in the Roman Empire period. Uh, they were tried during the French Revolution and so forth. I mean with the penalty including death for anyone who violated the wage and price controls and indeed they do not work because you are treating the symptoms rising prices and not the disease, the expansion of the money supply. Politicians, of course, love wage and price controls because it brings more power to the government and increases their authority or the bureaucracy's authority over the individual affairs of uh, the Americans or the citizens of any particular country. We've seen the great debt that Thomas Jefferson feared. Today your dollar buys less than twenty cents of the nineteen forty dollar through this process of sophisticated thievery. Greatest monetary authority in the world, in my opinion, Dr. Franz Pick, has pointed that the true dollar is about eight cents of a 1940 dollar. If you use everyday indices such as Pepperidge Farm Rolls, because the government indices are woefully inaccurate in their focusing on the day-to-day items. If you base it on the 1933 dollar, our dollar today day buys perhaps five cents in value of a 1933 dollar. As bad as the thievery aspect of inflation, the effect upon the public and private morality is probably worse because all the value systems of society are destroyed. Is there a single person in this room today that can tell a child it's smart to save money for a rainy day? Anyone here that can say you go home to your children, honey, uh, always put your money in a piggy bank because then when you break the bank in years from now you will come out ahead. You put your money in the piggy bank and he breaks the bank in 10 years that child will be lucky in my opinion very lucky if he has 10 percent of the purchasing power of the money that was put into the bank. distorts all the value systems of our society. Some social philosophers say that all crime is related to inflation. I'm not sure that I can go that far, but it makes for an interesting point. Our Republic today frankly stands in, uh, as a mere shadow of its former self. The Constitution hangs in shreds. Today, very few things uh, that affect your lives are related to the law of the land, the Constitution of the United States. Or the constitutional laws passed by Congress. Today, your day to day affairs are controlled by the vast bureaucracy in Washington the FCC, the IRS, the FDA, HEW, HUD, and so forth that hold alphabet soup. These people are not elected, and their rulings have the effect of law even though the laws they're not laws passed by the Congress, and the Constitution is very clear that the Congress is to be the law making body. But we have seen that illegitimate growth and outgrowth of the executive branch, the bureaucracy, which today has become ninety eight percent of the federal government, completely bypassing the whole intent of the Constitution. And it was William Simon in his book that said the redistribution of wealth from the productive citizen to the non-productive citizen has become the principal government activity. Indeed that's true. When he wrote the book about 53-54 percent of our budget was involved in what was termed transfer payments. Transfer payments of course is the nice sounding term, the euphemism for using the policing and taxing powers of government of taking money from those who earned it and transferring it over to those who did not. Today, it approaches 60% of our federal budget. I'd like to point out that that's exactly the opposite of what our founding fathers intended. Samuel Adams once again said, the utopian schemes of leveling in a community of goods are in our government unconstitutional. Our Christian heritage also has been greatly transformed I think many ministers have been put to sleep under another cliche, that being that we must have a separation of church and state. Now, I strongly believe in a separation of the institution of church and the institution of state. But in our Constitution, it states that Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of a religion. or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Many people quote the first part of the sentence and leave off the second part of the sentence. But it's of interest to note that the Constitution states that Congress shall pass no law. It said nothing about an individual state. you would be interesting knowing that after the Constitution was Uh, ratified, there were states that had a church-state relationship. I think in Massachusetts, they had the Congregational Church, had a church-state relationship with the state of Massachusetts. Uh, Virginia had the Anglican Church and a church-state relationship. They Both of them phased that out, but it said that Congress shall pass no law respecting the establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But under the cliché... That you must have a separation of church and state we have seen a separation of religion or a religious basis of morality from the foundations of american law and so in the 20th century increasingly we have seen a shift from a biblical basis of law or morality that is transferred into law into humanism as a form of morality and uh, a lot of people well what does humanism mean we can turn just a minute we'll be quoting arthur schlesinger jr but uh, many of our leaders have pointed to the new concepts that have uh, gripped our leadership in this case humanism means simply that you're taking the world and kicking god out of the universe and replacing god with man so therefore right and wrong the guidelines for man and man's institution of society would be based not upon any eternal values, but rather whatever satisfies man. Whatever satisfies man or man's institution, in this case, government. It was Karl Marx who said humanism is Marxism and Marxism is humanism. I don't agree with Karl Marx on many things, but he was absolutely correct on that. And I would say that perhaps 80% of my time as a representative in Washington is spent dealing with legislation that would be classically viewed by our founding fathers as unconstitutional. Very clearly the case up until, say, 1936. In 1936, there was a transition of the philosophy of our Supreme Court to where the guiding philosophy was no longer that of constitutional law, but rather a transition into social law. Social law being no longer what the Constitution says, but law based upon what the judges think is best for the people. Once again a humanistic view. And we're finding that so many of our laws once again have a have a humanistic background to them. And fortunately, about a year ago on August the twenty second, nineteen seventy eight, The IRS placed in the Federal Registry proposed rules changing affecting the tax-exempt status of private schools, particularly church-related schools. And this has caused many ministers to wake up to their responsibility while they have been saying, we must have a separation of church and state. The whole basis of our government has been undermined uh, from a biblical basis of morality to that of a humanistic basis. In the area of foreign policy, in my lifetime we have seen some interesting changes. Lenin died in 1924, but before his death he paraphrased and summarized a philosophy of world conquest, which is as follows, first, the conquest or taking of Eastern Europe, second, the masses of Asia, and third, the encirclement of the last bastion of capitalism, the United States of America. We would not have to attack, he felt, but rather it would fall like overripe fruit into our hands. Following the chaos and destruction of World War I, we found that the communists were able to take over a land base in what had been known as Russia and then they moved to conquer many surrounding countries, independent countries, Azerbaijan, Georgia, Ukraine extended that conquest to the Baltic nations of Latvia, Estonia, and Lithuania uh, during and following World War II and immediately before World War II. And as a result of the conferences, uh, Tehran, Yalta, Casablanca, as a result of the conferences, at the end of World War II and in the immediate years following, were able to solidify the Eastern European area as part of the Soviet empire. By the end of 1950, 49 and 50, the great mass of Asia, China, had fallen to the communist hands. And we have seen more recently, southeastern Asia, Cambodia, Laos, Vietnam, fall increasingly under the communist orbit. Today, we find Cuban troops, proxy troops, storming up and down in Africa and also in the Middle East, being led and commanded by Czechoslovakians, East Germans, and Soviet generals. We have found uh, this year, the transfer of a once staunch ally in the Mideast, Iran, into what I believe very clearly will prove to be a transition state of chaos under Khomeini, as it is being carved cleverly out of the Western civilization block on the road to becoming part of the Soviet empire. In my opinion, without any question, the loss of Iran to Western civilization was the direct result of policies coming out of the West, most especially those in Washington, D.C. We have seen in the Western Hemisphere the capture of uh, the island of Cuba uh, for as a Soviet base. As today we have Soviet troops, we've had number one Soviet advisors and trainers of uh, military groups. That have been there since the early 60s. But more particularly, for the last three years, there has been an infantry, uh, mechanized infantry unit of approximately 3,000 men separate from the advisors and trainers that have been operating as a separate Soviet unit. What they're there for is a matter of conjecture. Some of the best people believe that they're there to protect nuclear weapons that they have not trusted the Cubans with that particular mission. Peru is the second country in the western hemisphere to be receiving Soviet arms. The approximately 500 Soviet T-54, T-55 tanks, Soviet SAM missiles, Czechoslovakian howitzers, and Soviet uh, supersonic uh, fighter attack aircraft are now in Peru. This year after a long sought-after drive we have seen uh, the Panama Canal transferred to the pro-communist government under the dictatorship of Omar Torrijos in the area of Panama. This year we have seen the transfer of strongly pro-Western anti-communist Nicaragua into the communist orbit under a uh, Sandinista coalition that very clearly is becoming openly a pro-Castro, pro-Soviet state as Nicaraguan children are being flown now for training in Cuba and over a thousand Cuban teachers are now in Nicaragua. Uh, The most recent information that I have coming just this week that there are now more than 1,000 Russians in Nicaragua and we were being led to believe by our media and by many people in responsible places that that was going to be some type of a move for freedom um, from the dictator of Anastasio Somoza, forgetting the fact that Somoza was elected in open elections, internationally inspected elections in 1974 for a six-year term. This is the transition that we have found as we see the encirclement of our country and the response in Washington is one of half-heartedly the view that we will counter all of this in the Western Hemisphere at least by creating some type of a Caribbean brigade. What they're going to do, I don't have the foggiest idea, because if you're going to come down on the side of the pro-communist faction as in Nicaragua, and, and uh, I wonder what would happen when the, when the terrorism increases in El Salvador. It's my personal view that El Salvador will be in the pro-Soviet bloc by December and Guatemala possibly as early as this time next year. In the area of our military, we, as Americans, so many of your friends and neighbors, if you talk to them tomorrow or this sometime this weekend, and ask them where do they believe that we stand from the standpoint of defense preparedness. The typical American is of the view that we still have the military superiority that we had essentially at the end of World War II. Unquestioned superiority. Greater than any enemy or potential combinations of enemies. That's a very nice pipe dream, but as a member of the Armed Services Committee, I think that it is completely false. In my personal assessment, we today stand number two in military capability number two is not necessarily so bad if you're trying harder but in this case the trend lines for the future are all in the wrong direction. Many of our young people are led to believe that the reason we have this particular imbalance in our economic house is because the tremendous cost of what they would term our military industrial complex. That's of interest because those of you who are growing up or adults during World War II, you remember that we viewed with pride our ability to provide our armaments and those of our allies, and we used the term the arsenal of democracy. But sometime in the 50s, by a sort of a semantic somersault, that was turned over to military industrial complex. You're supposed to paint it kind of gray, be suspicious of it, certainly can't trust all those bad generals and admirals, and so forth. And in 1955, just to cover the economics of it, you know, 55% of our budget went for defense. Ten years later, in 1965, 40% of our budget went for defense. Ten years later, in 1975, 25% of our budget went for defense. Today, when you figure all areas of federal spending, about 22% is going for national defense. Of our defense dollar, $0.60 goes to personnel and personnel-related cost. We have opted to go the route of the all-volunteer army. Will it work? Does it work? Once again, it depends upon what your definition of work is. If what you want out of the military is some force that can show up for parades on the Fourth of July, a Memorial Day, yes, I think it works. If what you want out of the military is a force that is going to be able to protect our country in the event of an armed conflict, the answer is no, it is not going to work. The Soviet Union, by comparison, you're finding that they're spending less than 25% on personnel and personnel-related costs. Soviet Union, by comparison, is now on the greatest military research, development, production, and stockpiling in the history of the world and never in history has a totalitarian power amassed such an arsenal and failed to use it. Maybe we're approaching the millennium when the lion can rest with the lamb. I think we've reached that time today, frankly. As Tom Anderson says, if you're willing to pitch a new lamb into the lion's cage each morning, you can at least start out the day with the lion and the lamb together. (laughs) The Soviets have never wavered from their stated intention of world domination and they feel today that they're in the final stages of that objective in the belief that we are too fascinated with enjoying the good life to make the sacrifices to protect our system in the area of strategic weaponry we have moved into a posture in my opinion of inferiority in the area of missile firing nuclear subs it's about an imbalance of three to two in favor of the Soviets. When you figure all naval aircraft, uh, naval, uh, naval ships, the imbalance is between five and six to one in favor of the Soviets. When you figure the defensive aircraft of fighter interceptors, the imbalance is in the range of eight to one in the favor of the Soviets. When you figure defensive radar capability, the imbalance is approximately fifty to one in favor of the Soviets, when you favor chemical when you consider chemical warfare, the imbalance is in the range of at least once again 50 to one. But since the period of Robert McNamara and the Kennedy administration, we were led to place our trust in a new concept of national defense referred to as mutual assured destruction. It has the interesting and fascinating acronym of M.A.D. or M.A.D. Many of us felt that was most appropriate. I personally thought it was pretty good. But under Mutual Assured Destruction, the concept is this. We both have gigantic weapons of destruction, and if they attacked first, we will still have the capacity to bring so much damage to the Soviet Union that Uh, they would not dare do so. And if they were to attack, we could then still attack back and destroy so much of their population and country that it wouldn't be worth it. Their population, therefore, would act as a hostage against a surprise attack. We would not make a surprise attack because the Soviet Union would have enough weaponry to come back at us to destroy our country and population and therefore our population would act as hostage, and therefore the concept of mutual assured destruction. We then moved to phase out one weapon system after another. Skybolt weapon system. We moved to ultimately cancel the B-1 bomber, hold back production of the neutron bomb, and so forth. And we have now seen that the Soviets not only caught up with us after the tremendous gap in our favor in the 60s, but have now surpassed us Well, the concept of Mutual Assured Destruction might have some academic value. In in theory, you could argue about its merits, except that they have decided to upset the equation by setting up a very aggressive civil defense program. Since the Cuban Missile Crisis, all buildings of the Soviet Union have been equipped with a shelter program, and they have made the test and made the provisions to protect their industry. Under this basis, A population and an industry can survive a massive uh, attack and they are certainly being led to believe that we of course have dismantled uh, our civil defense what remnant of a civil defense program that we ever had in the area of internal security tremendous changes have taken place in recent years many of you may be led to believe that that really is not an area that you need to show much concern about because after all uh, we have, don't we, the Subversive Activities Control Board, we have the Attorney General's list of subversives, we have the Internal Security Division of the Justice Department, we have the Intelligence Units of Metropolitan Police Forces, we have counter-subversive, counter-intelligence units of the Armed Forces, the Congress is certainly looking after things because we have the House Internal Security Committee, the Senate Internal Security Subcommittee, and, of course, we finally have the FBI and the CIA. Today, all of those items that I have mentioned have now been abolished. With the exception of the FBI that has been markedly cut back in the era of internal security, terrorist support groups have no surveillance over terrorist activity support groups. And those that do have surveillance are pitifully few and, frankly, are some of the kooky fringe groups and not some of the large radical ones that could be of so much damage. I think we're standing on the verge of a tremendous outbreak of terrorism in this country, and we will be naked before the onslaught because we have have almost no surveillance or capability to combat such a problem. In a quick analysis of the budget, we have approximately 60% is in the area of transfer payments that our founding fathers clearly viewed as unconstitutional. About 22% is in the area of national defense and the third largest area of the budget is simply the interest on the debt that is now costing us at a rate in excess of $1500 per second. 60 seconds to the minute, 60 minutes to the hour, 24 hours a day around the clock. From the high of World War II and respect around the world, Americans then became bogged in the quagmire of Korea and the policy of a no-win war in Korea and then finally the Vietnam War that split Americans, uh, divided families, which was not only a stated no-win war, where both President Johnson and Secretary of Defense McNamara stated that victory is not the objective, uh, we pursued a policy of aid and trade to the enemy ultimately shipping over 650 items to russia and eastern europe including radar parts gun cleaning solvents jet engines diesel engines compression engines mountains of foodstuffs mountains of technical instruments medical supplies and so forth we in our lifetimes have witnessed a steady retreat from greatness and a government that today the principal function is no longer to protect but instead to be a government that is to provide. How can this be? How could this transition have taken place? From a nation of unparalleled greatness, of pride at the beginning of this century, to a nation of overwhelming power at the end of the last global war, to today a nation that is Uh, Believing that we can place our trust in paper treaties and the hope that we can place our trust in paper treaties. In my opinion, there are probably three groups of typical Americans that must share a large part of the blame. The first group would be that segment known as the American news media, the media because I think they have many times moved to editorialize the news and to keep our people ignorant and sometimes apathetic regarding trends in this country. So many of the graduates of the schools of journalism have been led to pursue advocacy journalism, not reporting the news, but editorializing the news. The second group, in my opinion, that must take a bow for the area of the blame would be members of the legal profession. Now, we have in the Congress some very fine lawyers, constitutional lawyers who are worth their weight in gold. We have very few. Most members of the House and Senate are lawyers, but we have very few constitutional lawyers, in my opinion. Thanks so many lawyers were trained to understand the principles of our republic, but were led to desert those principles and have become very actively trained in the art of compromise, a plea bargaining and so forth and are masters with words and phrases but have lost sight of the principles that made this country great and I think a third area of blame would have to rest with another major segment of our communities that opinion molders being ministers so many of our ministers I think particularly those in the National Council of Churches have uh, allowed themselves to follow a social gospel moving away from their role as traditional salvational gospel. We have a segment in the world, of course, that's been actively pushing for this objectives of transition in the globe. Of course, a communist segment. I think that they have had uh, undoubtedly some successes. Uh, That group believes in Marxism by revolution, bloodshed and violence. There are those, however, that have been tremendously powerful and successful in this country, especially, who believe in Marxism by evolution, but not revolution. And this group had its founding in England at the latter part of the 19th century. Beatrice and Sidney Webb, George Bernard Shaw, and others were active in the formation of the Fabian Socialist Society. And you have on the book table, the book by Martin, The Fabian Freeway, an excellent volume covering the development of the Fabian movement, those who believed in a Marxist society but by evolution rather than revolution. And they were able to capture the prime ministership of England by the early part of the 20th century and correctly assess the point that the success of a transition throughout Western civilization would require a capturing of the major institutions in the United States, not England. And we saw a shift From England to this country capturing uh, the schools of economics of anthropology sociology targeting in on the schools of law to change the basis of our law from that of constitutional law to social law I think the Fabians would have to take a blame a lot of it related to citizen apathy it's not that 51% of the American public believes in socialism or believes in surrender of our sovereignty. I think the problem has been that 95% of our public has been fascinated with enjoying the good life. Now there's nothing wrong with enjoying the good life providing you also as individual citizens are willing to exert the responsibility of protecting the system that allows the good life to be possible. I think we've been preoccupied with changing black and white tv to color tv or getting out to the lake ahead of the crowd this weekend and we have been apathetic to our responsibilities this can be summarized with the development of the lack of an informed electorate contributed to by the loss of leadership in our communities and into this void uh, being filled so often by an advocacy, advocacy journalism in short our people lack knowledge lack understanding there's nothing new about this we can turn to the Old Testament and the book of Isaiah in the chapter 5 in the 13th verse and here is the prophet lamenting the fact that the people in his lifetime being led off into captivity losing their freedoms because they lack knowledge therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge and their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. We can turn back to the fourth chapter of Hosea. Prophet Hosea, here's that prophet lamenting the fact his people losing their freedoms, being led off into captivity, losing their liberties because they lack knowledge. The fourth chapter, sixth verse. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee, Thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing thou hast forgotten the law of thy God, I will also forget thy children." These are all various things in which so many of our friends and neighbors have played a part in the apathy or, in some cases, just simply the lack of an informed electorate. But I think a tremendous part of this transition, what might be normally termed the general rot that takes place in any civilization that we must guard against that is always present and Oswald Spengler in his book The Decline of the West points to the natural trend of civilizations perhaps going six or seven hundred years but we are looking at a particular civilization that is making a transition in slightly over 200 years a very rapid transition and how can this be I think it is very clearly because individuals and groups in high places have worked to bring it about this morning it was my pleasure to be on an interview program with one of your radio stations here in albany and the and you know from the title of the talk is a conspiracy in washington and the particular announcer for the interview said well are you saying that there is a conspiracy well yes that's what i'm saying but unfortunately to many of our friends and neighbors when you use the word conspiracy it tends to shut off the thinking process it's sort of a mental cybernetic bullet that goes into the brain and short circuits the thinking and creates an emotional response they're led to believe that all you're talking about well you know the Green Hornet or perhaps you've been reading a Sax Romer's books on the Fu Manchu conspiracy to control the world and so forth and how silly can you be But we are led to believe that those things cannot exist. But yet if you have a relatively small number of individuals working together quietly or privately to bring about dangerous or evil objectives that by dictionary definition is a conspiracy. We can go back to the early part of the 20th century and the founding of the Council on Foreign Relations being led by the man who was the background for us during the the Woodrow Wilson administration, Edward Mandel House, And when he gathered together with him, five bright young men in Paris to set set about the organization that would become the Council on Foreign Relations, the most powerful organization in America today. Five bright young men, just law school graduates, of John Foster Dulles, Alan Dulles, Christian Herter, Walter Lippmann, and Norman Thomas. And each of these, of course, blossomed out into separate areas of major endeavor. By the late 1930s, the Council on Foreign Relations had largely captured the Department of State of the United States and had been able to set the post-war policy. And in short summary, through the writings of Edward Mandel House and others, the basic drive is to phase out national sovereignties on the road to a global government or world government objectives. Arthur Schlesinger, Jr., a historian, American historian and key figure in the Council on Foreign Relations, writing in the Partisan Review, the May-June issue of 1947, in an article entitled, The Future of Socialism in America, Arthur Schlesinger, Jr. stated that Quote, although it's been kept a secret from the readers of the liberal press, we in the policy planning division have been proceeding along these lines for some time. And then he went on to outline that our basic policy, our hidden policy, has been to transform our government through a series of contrived new deals steadily to the left on the political spectrum and through a concept of benign containment we allow the communist world to mellow and thus to be able to merge in the vital center in his term the vital center of the socialist left and in fact Mr. Arthur Sletcher jr. wrote an entire book on the subject entitled the vital center and he said this is our objective now we have had to keep it a secret from the american public because they're not very sophisticated either they believe in beer and bowling alleys and things like that, and uh, we're the real thinkers up here and we're working this objective, they wouldn't understand the natural tendency. There is a natural tendency of the Americans to want to hit the Soviets with everything we've got, and we must restrain that. In fact, in this, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. said, quote, should any of the reactionaries in the buffer states decide to exert any of their obsolete prerogatives? we must not succumb to an anti-soviet crusade Now, i'll admit that's rather a blank language but translated should any of the buffer states decide or become free in the satellite nations we must not help them we must allow them to be reconquered because after all if the objective is a merger into a global society in the vital center of the socialist left it's very inefficient to have some nation spinning off and becoming a freedom-loving nation of individual liberty. Then you just have to go through the process of re-collectivizing them all over again. So you can't do that. We must not him. He also, in his writings, pointed out that we in the policy planning division have rejected the absurd myth of any salvation through a Christ on the cross, believe that whatever there will be or is to be, Will be the result of man and man's technology that of course is pure definition of humanism i think many americans were stirred in 1956 when the people of hungary rose up to become free and they were free for about seven days and i know that many of you perhaps asked yourselves why is it that we could not recognize the new government of hungary why is it that we couldn't get the wheels turning in our State Department time to say, look, we recognize this government, we recognize its sovereignty, and you stay out? Well, a lot of people say, well, you know, nothing moves very quickly in the State Department. And it just takes a long time for the bureaucracy to get going. We just never got it going. We could recognize Castro before he even got to Havana. We then flew him to Washington and paid him twice the price for Cuban sugar as compared to the world sugar market. We could do that just like that, but we could not recognize the people of Hungary. What we did was worse than non-recognition. Hungary was free for four days and our State Department sent a secret telegram to Tito, which could be delivered to the Khrushchev, to the Soviets. Telegram read as follows, the government of the United States does not look with favor upon governments bordering on the Soviet Union, antagonistic to the Soviet system. Well, of course, that's really all that Khrushchev needed to know. Within 48 hours, he mobilized 5,000 tanks, a quarter of a million men, and crushed Hungary. 1968, the people of Czechoslovakia rose up and to throw out the Soviets. Secretary of State Averill Harriman stated, it is not with our policy to interfere because Czechoslovakia is within the Soviet sphere of influence. We can turn to the 1950s in the Rees Committee hearings on the Foundations. And Norman Dodd, who is the counsel for the Rees Committee hearings, decided to get together in a prior testimony meeting with Mr. Gaither of the Ford Foundation to kind of go over some of the ground rules and plans for the coming testimony. Mr. Gaither of the Ford Foundation was coming to testify. And Norman Dodd was shocked to hear from Mr. Gaither the statement, well, we and the foundations, and the large foundations, we have been proceeding along the basic secret directives that our function is to change the social, political, and economic system of the United States to where it can be comfortably merged with that of the Soviet Union. Norman Dodd was shocked, said, you, you know, you can't be serious. Are you willing to come up in testimony and say that? Gaither said, Don't be silly. I would never say that in public session. You would find that very interesting quotation and background uh, in the film strip, The Insiders. And in the particular packet that those of the host, the chapters of the John Birch Society, the $5 packet, that particular film strip, uh, the soundtrack to it, by that I mean the text to it. And the footnote for that is in there. It's a letter from Mr. Dodd to Howard Kirshner more recently it's going to be a whole chapter in a forthcoming book by Mr. William McElhaney, and I think it's going to be a great help well later on in the 1960s early 1962 former FBI man Dan Smoot wrote the book The Invisible Government it was not the first book to be written I think Mary Davidson wrote a book uh, of the secret government of the United States it was not an easy book to read, not one easily passed around either. But Dan Smoot, I think, did a great service when he wrote the book The Invisible Government that gave a lot of background of the planning and the objectives of those in higher places of our society. The dominant force in government, the dominant force in the cabinets, the dominant force in finance, in the media, in the foundations, and in the educational institutions of a relative handful, less than 2,000 Americans who have come together in the organization the Council on Foreign Relations. In the 1960s, a member of the Council on Foreign Relations wrote a very weighty volume entitled The Tragedy and Hope, Professor Carol Quigley. Professor Quigley, I believe of Georgetown University, uh, professor of history, he said, yes, uh, that's the way it's going on. And I was allowed for two years to be able to examine the secret papers and plans, and the thing I object to is that we're keeping it a big secret. That's the tragedy. But I believe that, frankly, the thing is such a beautiful plan and so far down the line that even if the American people wanted to object to it, there's really nothing that they could do. And the hope is that we'll be able to go ahead and bring it about the final fruition of a basically worldwide controlled society, the tragedy and hope. Then in 1973, David Rockefeller, who is now chairman of the Council on Foreign Relations and one of the leading figures of the Council on Foreign Relations, indeed the Rockefeller Foundation has been made one of the financial bulwarks of the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, He's also chairman, of course, of Chase Manhattan Bank. Council on Foreign Relations was formed in 1921, but then David Rockefeller took an elite group out of the Council on Foreign Relations and formed a group called the Trilateral Commission that was founded in nineteen uh... seventy three the executive director of that was a rather obscure professor named Zbigniew Brzezinski it's trilateral because it refers to people in the orient principally japan in north america principally america uh, united states and in europe principally west germany hence the term trilateral you're looking at an organization with perhaps about one hundred and eighty American citizens as members. It has evolved into sort of a super-elite of the Council on Foreign Relations in the current administration. Indeed liberal magazines were shocked to realize after the 1976 elections that well perhaps they had been tricked. They thought Jimmy Carter was simply another populist candidate, sort of a homespun liberal, a corn-tone liberal if you wish and uh, that that would be uh, a game sort of along the Hubert Humphrey mold. But then suddenly they realized that indeed the Trilateral Commission is the Carter administration. One of the individuals that was brought into the Trilateral Commission early in its founding was a rather obscure governor from the South, James Earl Carter. But then after the election of Carter, it's interesting to note that you have Vice President Mondale, member of the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission. Zbigniew Brzezinski, National Security Advisor, head of the National Security Council, member of the Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission. Cyrus Vance, Secretary of State, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission. Harold Brown, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission. George Brown, who was the Chief of Staff, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, and Stanfield-Turner, CIA Chief, Council on Foreign Relations. You have, in the Department of Energy, Sawhill, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, Schlesinger, Council on Foreign Relations, and currently Duncan, Trilateral Commission. You have, in the Treasury, you had First Blumenthal, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, and now Miller, uh, Council on Foreign Relations. In HEW you had uh, Califano, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, and Harris now uh, Council on Foreign Relations. EPA, TRAIN, Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission. U.N. Ambassador Andrew Young, Council on Foreign Relations, Trilateral Commission, and McHenry now with Council on Foreign Relations. Federal Reserve Arthur Burns Council on Foreign Relations Trilateral Commission Miller Council on Foreign Relations and now Paul Adolph Walker Council on Foreign Relations and Trilateral Commission when you start moving into key people in the media CBS NBC and ABC the New York Times Time Life magazine and some of the so-called investigative reporters you quickly begin to realize how the game is being played to reshape our policy there are a relatively small number of members of the uh, House and Senate who are members, a relatively small number in the House, but in the Senate, you have the following members who are now past or present members of either Council on Foreign Relations of the Trilateral Commission. Aberesque Anderson of Minnesota, Baker, By, Bellman, Belinson uh, Biden, Brooks, Bumpers, Byrd of West Virginia, Cannon, Chase, Chafee, Childs, Church, Clark. Cranston, Culver, Danforth, Deacon Durkin, Glenn, Gravel, Hart, High School, Hatfield of uh, Montana, Hatfield of Oregon, Hathaway, Hayakawa, Heinz, Hodges, Hollings, South Carolina, Huddleston, Inouye, Jackson, Javits, Kennedy, Leahy, Long, Magnuson, Mathias, Matsunaga, McGee, McGovern, McIntyre, Metzenbaum, Morgan, Monahan, Muskie, uh, Nelson, uh, Nunn, Packwood, Pearson, Pell, Percy, Proxmire, Rubikov, Regal, Roth, Sarbanes, Sasser, Sparkman, Stafford, Stevens, Stone, Talmadge, and Weicker, and Williams. And you begin to realize that, uh, that while you're not uh, having much discussion in the press about how the game is being played. Why the transition has occurred in our lifetime away from national sovereignty, solvency and economics, and for a traditional heritage based upon eternal values. Well, what can be done about this? I think very clearly we can all recognize that changes in our society come about as a result of actions in Washington. Washington is divided into three branches of government, the executive, judicial, and legislative. And I already mentioned that we've had some sort of the illegitimate growth of the executive of the bureaucracy, but officially we have those three branches of government. In my opinion, no amount of sacrifice or loss of treasure by any individual in this room is going to be able to reverse the stranglehold at the top levels of both parties. In my lifetime, regardless who is president, It has been an individual who has been willing to go along with this trend towards international and not national objectives. And I don't think that's going to change in 1980. It may be moderated somewhat, but that stranglehold is almost complete. In the federal judiciary, symbolized by the Supreme Court, no amount of sacrifice by any person in this room of time or treasure will be able to reverse in 1980 or 1981 uh... the philosophy the stranglehold of the philosophy of social law rather than constitutional law that will come about when we have a transition uh... of members in the senate and also a president who would handle appointments based upon an allegiance to the constitution this brings us by default to the congress and in my opinion very clearly the congress is the key that's where concerned and knowledgeable americans should be active in the house of representatives particularly, and in the Senate. Now, I know that we all have friends and neighbors who, in 1980, will be fascinated with the presidential elections. And for two weeks, they'll put a bumper sticker on their bumper, and they'll be discussing the presidential election. And it's very easy to do that. After all, anybody can put a bumper sticker on for two weeks. Anybody can wear a button for a few days that really requires no effort and very little sense of responsibility The very difficult and hard work are those individuals who are working in our communities to build an informed electorate To be able to preset the political machinery dials to elect sound Constitutionalists to the house and to the Senate now I'll give you a quick assessment. It's my own uh, the house I can't give you one quite as precise to the Senate, but in the House you have 435 members in the House. I think they're divided into three groups. Two of the the groups are philosophical groups. They're philosophically uh, uh, disciplined groups. Uh, One of the groups is not philosophically disciplined. I would say, in my opinion, between 100 and 110 are philosophically committed to the goals of totalitarian socialism. Now some of them believe in getting there by revolution and violence, and some by uh, evolution, by the Fabian route. But the objective would be the same. A revolution and violence or by evolution. Now these people look like politicians and act like politicians, in the sense that they will show up for the 4th of July parade, send out newsletters, smile, shake hands, and so forth. But if you look at their voting records, you can see that they're not susceptible so much to letters or pressure that they are voting in accordance with a particular allegiance or philosophy. There's a second group, ideologically committed, perhaps 35 or 40, people who are committed to the views of limited government, a restoration of the Constitution, balancing the budget, restoring our faltering defense, and restoring, in short, the American dream, the committed constitutionalists. Now, they may look like politicians and act like politicians. They will show up for the parades and wave at the fair and shake hands and so forth, send out newsletters. But if you look at their voting records, they're pretty heavily committed to a philosophical review, regardless of the pressures, even if it means their defeat. Most members of Congress, of course, are in neither group. They follow about a 300 block category. They're not dedicated totalitarians and obviously they're not dedicated constitutionalists. Um, They're simply dedicated to getting re-elected. And they're willing to go whatever it takes on any given vote to getting re-elected. And if they perceive that the country is demanding a particular direction they will get out and move in that direction. If they perceive however that it's going the other way They'll go the other way. And this group is perhaps earmarked by the inconsistencies of their votes. On a philosophical point, they will be on both sides of the issue if you carefully examine their records over a period of their stay in Congress. But Congress is the key. Because in our district races, particularly the House of Representatives, it is not so heavily controlled by the news media. And individuals working in the communities on a day-to-day basis, going out door-to-door, and finding out who the concerned people are and building an informed electorate. That's the key. I think without that building of an informed electorate, uh, the cause is hopeless. The result of that is getting sound people as your representatives in the Congress. But the first step is the electorate. The Congress is a reflection of what goes on in the living rooms of America. It's totally illogical to expect to have a knight in shining armor, riding a white horse, slaying dragons in your behalf if your friends and neighbors don't care. Uh, This Sunday when you go to church, uh, you might ask the person sitting next to you who is the representative from your district. You'll find surprisingly that many people do not know. Perhaps one person out of 30 can give an accurate definition of inflation. Perhaps one person out of 50 will know how their representative voted on any two bills, this Congress or the last Congress for that matter. As long as this type of lack of understanding exists, we will continue to get more government, more spending, more controls, and a national retreat from greatness. The choice is frankly ours. How can this be done? Well, now, obviously, organization is the key. Now, there are a number of different organizations that are active in this endeavor. There are basically two categories. One of them would be viewed as essentially paper organizations, principally with headquarters in Washington or some other areas. Conservative Caucus, the American Conservative Union, Young Americans for Freedom, American Security Council, are some of the leading groups uh, of such organizations. I'm on the advisory board of all the organizations that I had mentioned. I'm on the uh, select advisory board of the Conservative Caucus in addition to the Congressional Advisory Board and also a member of the, as the introduction told you, uh, of the Secretary of Defense of the Shadow Cabinet. The American Conservative Union It's uh, my honor to serve as a congressional advisor. Same with Young Americans of Freedom, same with American Security Council. These organizations are essentially paper organizations in the sense that the constant mailings go out soliciting funds and your support so that they will be able to do a particular function at the home office wherever that home office is. You send in the money, they will get the pamphlets, put on the stamps, and send out the material in your behalf. Some of them have fairly large paper memberships, but they are indeed those paper memberships. It's sort of an inverted pyramid with the work being done at the home office level and the function of the so-called member is to send money to the home office. The second group I would mention would be the John Birch Society, the sponsors of this particular meeting tonight. The John Birch Society is different even though they have similar concerns and similar intentions The John Birch Society is different in that it is like a standard pyramid with the base at the bottom. The Society's head office is in Belmont, Massachusetts. Each member receives a monthly bulletin. And uh, the work is done by the individual members throughout the country. The petition gathering, the sending out of letters to representatives, to senators, letters to the editor, what have you, having speakers in and setting up ad hoc committees. Probably the most effective ad hoc program of the John Birch Society has been that of TRIM, meaning tax reform immediately, the acronym of tax reform immediately, trying to separate those politicians where there is a distinct difference, the rhetoric back home from the record in Washington. And I think most of you are familiar with TRIM bulletins. But the society is the only organization that is able to put legs under its literature because its program is at like a standard pyramid where all the others are the inverted pyramid that's the difference between the two concepts the second difference is that all of those that i mentioned have arisen out of a concern for what might be termed the problems that we have reviewed tonight all the others that i have mentioned over the past years have basically felt that the transition was due to stupidity in Washington, to ignorance in Washington, and to uh, the normal rot of civilization. It's just due to natural causes and we just need to get enough people to understand, beat them over their head, and then they'll change and turn around. The society is different in this sense that the society over the years, and let me say it has really taken its lumps for it, has tried to say, wait a minute, yes, there is stupidity, yes there is ignorance yes there are many politicians just out there to as self promoters just love to see their names out in lights and are just simply self promoters and they will go the way of the least resistance sure most people who are doing the damage probably fall in one of those categories but at the same time we do have in this country and in western civilization those organizations and individuals which are working to phase out national sovereignty, phase out free enterprise economics, phase out a biblical basis for morality into a one world global order, a conspiracy. This frankly has been ridiculed and I think some of you may have recently seen William Buckley's article uh, in defense of the Council on Foreign Relations. As a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, I would think that he would want to write a defense but very similar to his defense of Henry Kissinger, very similar to his defense of the turnover of the Panama Canal and so forth. The society has been ridiculed for the belief that there are those in high places. Are they communists? No, in most cases never been communists, would never be communist. But people who view themselves as an elite and in many instances have provided the financial wherewithal to internal communists revolutionary fires in this country either through the foundations or working to get them through government grants or through direct donations themselves and to create the political shift towards phasing out national sovereignty. Now I must say that that difference between the John Birch Society and the other organizations is now phasing out because frankly I think the battle is over. I think we've won the case. I think today even liberals, not the conservatives, but even liberals, the Harper's Magazine, Atlantic Monthly, uh, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, and others are grudgingly coming around to realize: Wait a minute! The game is being played by radically different rules than what we had assumed. We had assumed that there are the those and the white hats and those in the black hats, the bad guys and the good guys. But it appears that there's more than that. That there is an international elite that is willing to betray. The principles of our own country on the road to a global order. And that's the difference. And as I say, that is being phased out. When I went to Congress five years ago, I sat in on meetings. I think they knew I was in the society, but they sort of ridiculed that uh, the view that, well, you know, the Carol Quigley book, The Tragedy and Hope, ho, ho, ho. But you don't find anybody ridiculing it today because the overwhelming coincidence of an organization with perhaps 180 members of the United States citizens formed in 1973 and the overwhelming incidents in key places of control of society today, and the same with the Council on Foreign Relations. But the major drive that we have is the building of an informed electorate and understanding sound principles of economics, sound principles of government as our founding fathers intended within a constitutional republic and the basis of our social order. This has been the function and activity of the John Birch Society since its founding. Society, as you've already heard, was founded when Mr. Robert Welch gave a two-day speech in Indianapolis. The speech has since been reprinted. is known as the Blue Book of the John Birch Society. In the Blue Book, he outlined a series of predictions after first reviewing where we have been of where we are going. And to date, every, every item on that prediction sheet has come out to be the case. And I defy anyone in this room to find anyone in America. At any time in our history that has gave such a list of predictions that has since proven to be uh, completely accurate in terms of what the future and the immediate future will bring. Society now has divided into chapters, usually numbering from 10 to 20 individuals per chapter made up of men and women, young and old, black and white, Jew, Protestant, uh, Catholic people of various religious backgrounds coming together to first gain a better understanding through their own reading as well as by having the Speakers Bureau American Opinion Speakers Bureau by ad hoc committees in short it is very clearly the most effective organization today for those who are concerned about the direction of our country For those of you who are not members of the John Burt Society let me ask you this what are you doing about it what are you doing about the problems or the trends of our society you must be somewhat concerned or you would not be here tonight because it's always possible that some neighbor or some member of your family drug you here against your will let me ask you what are you doing about it effective now I know you may say well I speak out against it but if simply speaking out against it is not going to be able to make a change organization not numbers is the key our adversary understood that many years ago will you wait until your child comes back from college a confirmed marxist decide where you better do something will you wait until your savings are totally destroyed by government caused inflation before you decide that you better get involved will you wait until you lose a loved one in the next no win war type of conflict i think most americans when faced with the firm reality will say no that they're not willing to do that but I know that intellect may control a decision but your emotions will control your action in the packet I know it's in the packet I believe is a membership blank in the John Burt Society it's in the packet that was passed out uh, when you arrived and in that uh, you'll notice that there's a paragraph that protects you that automatically being reinstated as a member there's also a paragraph in there that protects the society should there be someone that wants to join for the purpose of coming in and destroying the John Birch Society. Where we have such an individual, on a rare instance, we simply wish them well and give them their money back on any money paid in advance. But I think most individuals who speak out, what they're really saying is, you know, I'm kind of reluctant to accept the personal discipline of an organized effort. The financial commitment of any member is within all of our abilities. The time commitment of a monthly chapter meeting is within the ability of every person in this room. The commitment to try to finish or read at least one book every month, because we're not going to be able to influence our friends and neighbors just speaking out on a motion without facts to back them up, and also to work in our communities to bring in other good people. This is the challenge in a program that can win and make the difference. Many members of Congress and in the Senate who are no longer there are, say that they were defeated because of the activities of the john birch society now the society is not a political organization it does not endorse or contribute to any party or candidate i'm a member of the national council i've never received a cent from the john birch society and i should not but it is an influence education organization and you will find that the individual members of the john birch society are the most active people politically to elect those individuals standing for less government Standing for a return of constitutional principles and the principles that made this country great. And you'll also find that those members are the most active individuals in your community, working on an organized basis as individuals, not as a society, working to defeat those who have brought about the problems that we face. To those of you who are already members of the society, let me give you my heartfelt thanks. I know the grind is tough. I know in past years that many people have sort of sneered, uh, maybe raised an eyebrow, and said, "Oh, you're not one of those super patriots, are you?" And sometimes that's kind of tough to answer if you're in a win with a crowd of people. It's sort of an embarrassing thing to have thrown at you. I know that uh, month after month dedication, when everybody, out is, everybody else is sort of out playing around, is is a is a real grind. But I think we have now come to the point where so many of those who are aware of what's happening and say, you know the John Burt Society was right all along. And so many people who felt that, well, that sure is a strange attitude 5, 10, 15 years ago, now say, you know, that's right. And we should remember as the United States Army Infantry Journal pointed out in 1939 in an article, I quote the following, resolute action by a few determined men is often decisive. Time and again, numbers have been overcome by courage and resolution sudden changes in a situation so startling as to appear miraculous have frequently been brought about by the action of small parties there's a reason for this the trials of battle are severe troops are strained to the breaking point at the crisis any small incident may prove enough to turn the tide one way or the other the enemy has invariably difficulties of which we are ignorant to us his position may appear favorable while to him it may seem desperate only an extra effort on our part may appear decisive well this is the challenge that we all face and it's not too much unlike the challenge that we had in 1776 at our founding when those 56 men came together and to set forth the principles of americanism pledging the belief that we as free men receive our blessings from a creator divine creator not government and that our right to our life liberty the pursuit of happiness and in the Constitution they added the right to own private property as unalienable rights our founding father said coming from God this was the meaning of our new system and then in this system the function of our government would be to protect our God-given rights those 56 men signed pledging their lives their fortunes and sacred honor Against incredible obstacles. They all kept their word and kept their pledge. And we tonight live in a land of liberty because of the sacrifices not of ourselves, but of those who have come before us. Ladies and gentlemen, while the light of freedom still shines in this land, admittedly,